All right, well, praise the Lord, and what a great day to be with you, and I'm honored to be with you, and I'm so thankful for uh, your pastor, my friend, Pastor Lewis Richardson. I've known him for, I guess, 18 years or so, as he mentioned, and so I have an affinity with your church through him. So grateful for how God has blessed your church, your testimony, and what a beautiful place this is with wonderful people and a great city for God's glory. I just want to say again, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me come. And uh, in our Sunday school time, we talked about prayer and fasting, and uh, I tried to do what I could to keep pace with time. And I said there were five areas in our lives by which we should pray and fast and which God uses to oftentimes get our attention. And the one that I did not get to mention was the word protection. So all of those note keepers and takers out there, I know, like me, it would bother me all day if I didn't know what the fifth one was. So that is the answer. God can use a lot of things to get our attention, can he not? And I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings 19 as we talk about one of those ways that God will use something in our life so that we can hear His voice. If I had a title for the message, it would just simply be, Hearing God Speak in Our Despair. I want to talk about that today. And uh, I want to say thank you to the praise team, those who are leading in worship. What beautiful words that is to sing to the Lord. I love the way that this uh, whole chapel, this worship center, really elevates the voices of God's people. It's a very beautiful thing. So uh, let me just say this, if you'll allow me, um, for Pastor Lewis, I'm grateful for his wife, Erica, and their beautiful family as well. And I know that your pastor loves you, and this is just a good word to always say to churches, make sure you love your pastor, love your pastor's wife, and love their kids. And what a great joy and relationship that is. When a pastor loves his church, the church loves the pastor, and they all love the Lord. Can I hear an amen? All right. First Kings 19, and I want you to follow along. I'm reading in the NIV, but I want us to get a heart for this passage. As I've prayed for these last uh, few months to come, this is the passage God has directed my attention. I have actually never preached out of this passage, so please know I don't uh, have some message that I pull out of a file to just kind of bring to you today, but this is where God has led me, and it really connects with this uh, topic of prayer and fasting. You'll, you're going to see that. I want us to see in sense in this passage, I'm going to read the first nine verses for us, the problem that Elijah was facing, the great burden of his life at this season. And then uh, as God uses that burden, how he then brings him to a place of surrender, and then how God speaks to him. All right, so we'll read the first nine verses and then spend our attention focusing on the rest of this story through verse 18. The Bible says that now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. 
I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water and he ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Pay attention to this. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. It is one of life's observations that some of the great men of God and some of the great women of God are also men and women of great flaws. I think as we read God's word, we often elevate the strengths and the ways in which God used men and women of faith, but we don't always humanize them. And one of the realities about Elijah's life is that this is one of the great figures of the Old Testament and then even mentioned often in the New Testament. You will recall that because of his great ministry that even John the Baptist ministered in that lineage of of one like that of Elijah. That even uh, the Lord, you think about how John the Baptist is a precursor to him. Some even thought he was an Elijah. And you look at that whole ministry going all the way into the book of Revelation. After the Lord has ascended and the church has come and been birthed, by that time the Bible points us to a time for which the Lord would return. And when he does, the Bible talks about one of the witnesses there in the end time events is none other than Elijah. He is a life that suddenly appears to us from out of the scriptures in the middle of a dark time in the people's lives. It wasn't just a difficult time for God's people. It would have been a difficult time for all people, but in particular, we're thinking of Israel. And as you think about wicked leaders, oftentimes somebody has said wicked leaders are only a reflection of wicked people. God's people were in spiritual disarray. The king Ahab at the time and his wife Jezebel were really the, the two faces to this evil kingdom. It would be bad enough to just have an evil king, but if you have an evil king married to an evil wife, well, then you have double the trouble. And in particular, if her name is Jezebel. And out of the middle of nowhere comes this great prophet Elijah who has a word from God. And he does what no man had ever done before. You think about up to this point, Elijah has raised a young boy from the dead. It's Elijah who not only performed that resurrection, but then spoke over a Mount Carmel there in Israel. From that mountain, fire from heaven, licking up the sacrifices of the Baal. All of those prophets, their lives were then taken. But not all of them. Out of that great feat in a real literal mountaintop experience, Elijah, this great man of God, has such humanity, and in his weakness, he understands what Jezebel has decreed, and he runs for his life. This great man of God was also very human. The book of James references Elijah and says that he was a human being, even as we are. Do you know why James says that? Because we would hear about prayers, he talks about it in James 5, and we would think, well, that works for Elijah, for he's a super saint. 
He'd call down fire from uh, the altars there on top of that mountain. Of course, God's going to hear his prayers, but what about mine? And uh, the answer from James is he's anticipating those first followers of the Lord was this. Uh, Just be mindful, Elijah was a human like you. And we see that humanity on display in chapter 19, for he is no longer up on the mountain. He is now down in the valley. And I don't know how to really say a lot about it other than what I have done already said, but Ahab, once again, it's not the first time in his life you can hear the tone. He's kind of uh, complaining to his wife Jezebel, as I take it. He tells her everything. Well, Jezebel sends this decree that now this great prophet of God's life will end just like all of the Baals. You know, there's something to this day that when we even hear the very name, there's a vibe that sends a shudder through our spirit. No wonder one of the seven churches, Jezebel, their name perhaps a namesake of this evil woman was the false teaching of a, a pagan worship, a pagan worship uh, and, and religion of which was influencing those believers at that time. Jezebel, Jezebel. Anybody ever met a lady named Jezebel? You may call somebody a Jezebel, but we don't name people affectionately after this woman. I want you to hear that this is more than just personalities. This was the full-on evil of the world that has come against one of God's own. And if there's ever been a time when people of God need to hear from God, And when people that love the Lord need to hear from the Lord, it's a day in which evil has prevailed upon us. The Bible says that in light of that, notice in verse 3 that he ran. My NIV translation, like some of yours, has inserted the word afraid, but the original actually says that when he saw, he ran for his life. And isn't that the way that fear always works? Fear usually takes a root of my life whenever somehow, with what I'm walking through, I'm paying more attention to that problem than I am the Lord. And somehow the problem itself becomes something that puts a check in my spirit about the things of God. And yet we find that Elijah, although he was a great man of faith in his humanity, he runs for his life. And he goes about as far south as he can. The Bible says that he came to Beersheba in Judah. He has trekked through the desert. He's gone through not only a desert wilderness, but he ends up in a cave. Those two images often portraying to us in our own despair how life can feel like whenever out of nowhere something happens to us or around us that calls us to go into some sort of a wilderness wandering or maybe in some despair. I was talking with someone yesterday trying to be a witness, and he said, that ultimately he had turned to the Lord, but the thing that used him to come to the Lord in his memory was that his house just before Christmas as a teenager had burned down. Said my family and I would attend church, we would attend church faithfully, but my parents stopped after the house had burned. There's really two ways to respond to heartache. Heartache can cause you to turn away from God, or heartache can cause you to turn towards God. That's true in my life. That's true in your life. That's true in the life of every believer who ever names the name of Jesus, no matter how long you live. And as problems come, as sure as they do, 
God will give us the opportunity to hear from him. Some describe this and they say that Elijah was depressed. That word is not used there. That does not mean that that's not an accurate description. He was certainly discouraged. I like to think of it as despair because he had lost sight of God and what God was doing in his life. And more than that, Elijah had thought it had all come to an end. As one great scholar pointed out, it was as if in his life, Elijah thought not only was it the end of him, it would have been the end of his ministry. And after all, Lord, you've used me to do great things. And if I'm no longer here, how will the work continue? In that despair, Elijah came to a place. You cannot make this up in verses four and five. It's a prayer that may sound familiar. If you allow me just to mention it, I've had enough, Lord. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Maybe not said it it that way. It's like a parent who, after a period of patiently putting up with a child, will say, now that's enough. And you want to take action. Elijah was in his heart saying, God, now's the time for you to speak. He prayed that he might die. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. I can't help but think of Jonah, who in his problem of all things, that God would turn hearts of pagan people to his, that it would send him into his own despair, and he would take comfort under that of a plant. Here he is. Isn't this really a pitiful place to be? Yet it's a familiar one to all of us, and it's even familiar to those who love God, especially to those who love God. I want to add something in verses 4 and 5, that when I read this, I kind of in my mind have this little word in the back of it. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. They're a worm. I'm a worm. We're all a worm. Let's lay down and die. It's as if he literally lost all hope, but God intervenes. Now, quickly, all of this is bringing him to a place of great humility. Uh, Elijah didn't ask for this. You and I do not often ask for God's lessons in our lives. I mentioned five things that God will often use to get us into a place where we will seek Him, we'll humble ourselves before Him in praying and fasting. He will use our need for protection. He'll use sin and our need for confessing sin, our grief. He'll use other things in our life when we need direction and instructions. And he'll use oppression when we need a spiritual breakthrough. Elijah, to me, needed direction, he needed correction, and he needed protection in his life. I want to show you how that happens in this passage. But notice how God meets with him. There from verse 5 through verse 7, the angel comes to him and feeds him. There's something so simple here, but powerful. He's reminded he's not alone. He's given food, and he's touched physically And he gets up and he eats, and then he lays down. The angel wakes him back up, and he says, the journey is too much for you. I think one of the reasons we can struggle whenever we feel like we're in despair is that we try to do so much alone. And we try to go forward as if we are a super saint. In his humanity, Elijah was relationally alone. Notice he left his servant there. He was emotionally in a wrong mindset. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. He was physically tired. And he was spiritually in a place for which he had no further direction. 
But when the angel came to him, he got up and ate. But notice there in verse 8, the Bible says something. I want to point out three of these little insights. Number one, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights. He wasn't taking an Uber. He wasn't traveling in the convenience of a car. This was the old-fashioned way of just one foot after another. If he'd had an animal, we're not for sure. We know that he had already had run. The Bible closes chapter 18 by talking about his physical stamina and strength and how he, how he under the Spirit's direction, ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The Bible gives us Beersheba and Mount Horeb as the two connecting points between his despair and God's intervention. I've read where somebody said it could be up to 250 miles, but at least 130 miles, think of this, of walking and traveling. I think the steps would have come slow to him. I think he would have contemplated all of what God had done, and he would have been thinking in his heart, Lord, what are you up to in all of this? And maybe even if I can, Lord, where are you in all of this? And the Bible says that that 40 days and 40 nights was the time frame for which he had traveled. It's interesting that you come across that phrase in the scriptures. Noah, there under God's provision and protection, some 40 days and 40 nights, the flood came. Moses, there as an intermediary between God and Israel, prayed. It was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelite spies 40 days, spied out the land of Canaan. And we come to the Lord of the New Testament for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted. I think the significance of that is that God works in seasons. And he works in perfect seasons. And your troubles may not be 40 days and 40 nights, but there's not a time in the life of any of his people by which God did not bring them to a time of humbling for which he was preparing them for a great work ahead. And it's true that in this season, Elijah needed to hear from God. After all, he was ready to not only throw in the towel, but to quit and quit altogether. And then the Bible says that he was, he was supernaturally, notice, strengthened by that food. I add the word supernaturally because you don't just eat a meal and then travel for 40 days. To me, that is a type of a fasting in his own life, relying upon God's provision. And it brings us to this place of where Elijah is. He is in great humility before God. And he goes to Mount Horeb. Did you notice that? Can I ask you if you are familiar with another name for Mount Horeb? In the Bible, the same mountain, it was also referred to as Mount Sinai. And there, Mount Sinai, we're introduced to another person for whom was supernaturally in the presence of God, 40 days and 40 nights, fasted, not just without food, but even without water. He even had a second time of 40 days and 40, fast, uh, 40 days of fasting and prayer because of the sin of Israel with the golden calf. What is God teaching us in this? The question really is, was Elijah trying to get there of his own mind and his own accord, or was God leading him? You know, we really don't have an answer to that question. If Elijah was being led of his own self in his despair, he was saying, God, I want to go back to the place where you met with Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the reformer of God's people, that which God has started, he has not abandoned. 
Elijah is a servant of the Lord in another season of life, and that mountain had great significance. Maybe Elijah's mind led him back to that place for where Moses encountered him. It was also likely that in Elijah's life, he knew he was under the direction and leadership of God. And oftentimes, the Bible tells us that Elijah was led of the Lord. That phrase would be used. As a matter of fact, you turn over previously in chapter 17, when Elijah first appears to us, the Bible says that as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. He gives that announcement, but the very next verse says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine. He was under the direction of God, no matter how he got there, And no matter how we oftentimes find ourselves in despair, the solution is always the same, that God sees you, God sees us, and he calls us in our humility to hear from him, to be in his presence. The Lord intervened. Notice verse 9. He went into a cave, and he spent the night. The night was not just the literal night, but the night of his own soul is, is often referred to. The dark night for when so much of what was happening was unexplainable to him. And then God speaks to Elijah. I want to point out a couple things if you look in your copy of God's Word. Notice with me that from verse 9 through verse 14, a couple things are happening. God is initiating this conversation. The Bible says that the Word of the Lord came to him, and God asked the question of Elijah, what are you doing here? You know, God always asks questions so that we can have an answer to what he's asking. He never asks a question because he is, he is befuddled by what is happening. Adam, where are you? Elijah, what are you doing here? Jesus, who do men say that I am? God is giving Elijah a question of his own heart. Why are you in this place? It was also the place for which, if we have all of this correct, that you remember when Moses was being used of God and God was directing his people, that the Lord called him up and put him between the cleft of a rock and his glory passed over Moses. As much as anybody could handle the glory and the presence of God, Moses was able to experience that. But notice it's the word all along that leads Elijah. And it's a clear word. One of the things I want to say to us as we think about hearing God and from God is, first of all, that our heart is listening to what he has already said. Most of our problem in life is not that we don't understand what God would have of us. Most of our problem is that we don't obey what we already know God wants from us. That's a true statement. And yet, as we think about this whole entire moment, Elijah heard from God And although he needed a word from the Lord, he was obeying what he knew. Obey what you know. If you're trying to figure out what God is doing in your life, maybe it's a direction that you're asking. Maybe that God would lead you in a relationship. It could be work-related, financially related, your health. God, what are you teaching me? Why not ask your Heavenly Father for wisdom, as James says? Let any man who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God But we follow all of that with what God has already revealed. There's a great scholar named Peter Adam who said this. 
as he thought about God's Word, as a wonderful little book, he just said, the real, real nature of Scripture is threefold, that God has spoken, God has written what He has spoken, and through that, God still speaks. And whenever we are in the Word and our life is lived in the daily presence of God, He's not left us in the dark. Have you noticed today that people are raising questions for where there are no questions in the Word of God? Only clarity. But if you don't use the word as your guide, whether it's the church, your personal life, a family, or a nation, when God's word is no longer directing our steps, when his word is no longer the thing by which we are humbling ourselves under and following, well, then we're left to our own demise. No wonder our world is in chaos and filled with disarray. Everybody, like the book of Judges, wants to do it their way and follow their own way. But here's Elijah. He's conveyed the word of God and now he needs a word from God himself. He's trying to put together what God is doing in his own life as he's been led to speak to the people of Israel. God asks a simple question. What are you doing here? Quickly then, notice verses 10 through 14. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Can you hear the despair in his voice? Aren't you grateful that God can handle that? There's a difference between sharing with God in a reverent way what you feel and what is going on in your life than accusing God. Here Elijah, though, is sharing all of this, and after he encounters the Lord, as we see this, just a moment, God speaks to him, and he's going to use the exact same phrase. As a matter of fact, verse 14 and verse 10 are identical to one another. They are the same. It took a while for Elijah to truly be able to hear from God, not because God is not clear, but because like us, he had a hard head. Can I get a witness? Sometimes we are just hard-headed. I had a pastor mentor years ago who said sometimes people would say to him after a service, Pastor, you really knocked it out of the park today. You really preached well. And he said, well, I preach the same every week. You only listen better this Sunday. <laughs> pastor Lewis, you can use that the next time somebody says it. They were just so impressed by the preaching. You know, every pastor, every pastor I think feels the same way. We don't want people to leave impressed. I don't want people to leave the great church that God's called me to pastor and think, what a smart pastor. I want people to be able to leave and say, I've heard from God today because we've read his word, looked up to him. We've humbled ourselves in his presence. And we've said, God, take those things in my life that are wrong and make them right. And let my life be aligned with your perfect way. There's a hint here, though, that Elijah, knowing all of this about God, is wondering why the Lord hasn't called down fire on the mountain again. Lord, if you could do it against the Baals, could you do it to this king and his wife? <laughs> it's not there in a clear way, but it's as if Elijah, though, is saying, Lord, they're now after me. Why aren't you doing something about this? I think that he feels the same way we all do whenever things don't make sense and it seems as if perhaps our enemies are gaining ground upon us. Somebody sometime back gave me it's called an old Gaelic blessing. Listen to these words. May those who love us, love us. And those that don't love us, 
may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles instead so we'll know them by their limping. (laughs) In our hearts, sometimes we want God to be able to work right now in our way. But it's part of God's humbling that it's not right now and it's not in our way and that we don't even understand it all and we don't have to understand it all. This great man of God, Elijah, was in this place. We're certainly going to be in this place where God gets us all alone. My mind kept coming back in this passage, not only to Moses and the cleft of the rock, but do you remember Jacob? After he had taken his brother's birthright and his blessing, that he had left and all those years worked for his uncle Laban, but he'd come back full circle to meet his brother Esau. He was terrified in so many ways. He knew that as surely as he had left his brother, he would be greeted in the same condition that he left him, that his brother would be bitter. And yet we come into this whole passage that as, as Jacob went back to meet his brother, there's that great passage in Genesis ch- chapter 32 where Jacob wrestled with God. It said that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And hear this, hear this phrase, so Jacob was left all alone. Do you know that God's way of humbling us is often that no matter the grief, no matter the oppression, no matter the difficulty, that we come to a place to say, God, you alone understand this. Lord, you alone can handle all of what I feel, what I am thinking. And the thing that we are left with is our next step of obedience. And that's always the right step. But notice in the hard-headedness, though, of Elijah God gave him this word in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. In the same way that God passed by Jacob, in the same way that God passed by Moses, he was going to pass by Elijah. And yet he was going to do it in a way that would have perplexed him. And it's certainly a way that today God still works and oftentimes perplexes us. Notice the Bible says that the Lord came in different ways first. He came by a wind. Then a great and a powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And that's where the Lord was. Your translation might say something a little differently. It may say something like this, that God came in a still, small voice. A still, small voice. Do you know that if you're a teenager, a student, that you can learn to hear from God, being in His Word, walking with Him daily? You'll never get too old. We'll never get beyond it. The need to hear the still small voice of God. One translation says this, it was barely an audible whisper. Sometimes whenever we are waiting for God to give us a cloud formation, some sign, we're saying, Lord, I need you to just show me. 
He's already shown us in his word, if we'll just walk with him in his word, a daily quiet time. Do you have a place where you meet God? Do you have a purpose for your meeting? That is to have a plan to walk through the scriptures and knowing that God's given you the great invitation to know him as a person. If you do not, you cannot hear from God in this way. But God will take all of the things that maybe you're feeling now that you're walking through and he'll say, you need to hear from me. You must hear from me. For if you do not hear from me, you do not humble yourself. You do not surrender. You'll never get to this place. I want to say something of a second way in which God speaks to us. It's always through his word. But every one of us, when we put our faith in the Lord, we're given the person of the Holy Spirit. And God will take a scripture, he'll take a passage, he'll take a song, he'll take, a, he'll take anything through his truth in real life, and he will direct our steps. He does it in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways that you know God is that when you are walking with him in his word, you know that you belong to him, and that God's spirit will not let you just live in sin without a conviction. God's spirit will not let you walk in grief without comfort when you look to him. God takes all of the circumstances in our lives and he calls us to look up to him. And in the looking up to him, he sees our humility. And as James says, draw near unto God and he'll draw near unto you. Elijah was trying the best he could to hear from God. I still see the hard headedness of all of this. And then the thing that I would give to you thirdly, that's so needed his word, a life filled with his spirit, and then the surrender of it all. You could come to church and hear God's word. You could even quote all of these points back. But if you don't let God work it out in your heart and the spirit of surrender, you'll never be transformed. I think about how Elijah, in verse 13, notice, heard it. He heard the voice of God. He pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Again, this is in the Old Testament, a time for which the Bible would talk about God's Spirit coming upon men. Remember, he's a prophet. He didn't have the Word of God in the way that we have the written Word today. He had what God had shared with him, but God was still speaking. He knew he was in God's presence. It was a holy place, and the voice asked him again, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives the exact same answer. You say, well, well then what is the difference between this moment and the rest of this story? Well, God gives him exactly what he needed. Can I just say this? Are you all right with this truth? Sometimes we ask God for things that we think that we need, but the truth is we don't always know what we need. And here Elijah was there needing instruction, needing direction, and God gives him instruction in the rest of this passage. But there come a place where Elijah had to surrender all of his questions, all of the situations he was walking through into the hands of God. He says again to the Lord, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. All over again. Sometimes we're so slow to learn things, and we know this. But God is so good. I just want to take a moment to just say that when you turn to the Lord and I turn to the Lord, we find our Heavenly Father longing to speak, longing to cleanse our lives, longing to bring us closer to him, to heal our hurts, to give us comfort where we need it. That is the blessing of the believer. People who do not know the Lord do not have that capacity. 
And all of us as believers, there's never been a time again where today we need to hear from God. And he has spoken. And we need to live this out through the power of his spirit. People are longing for this. When the world comes to the church, they shouldn't hear a word that the world gives. They've already heard it. When the world comes to the church, they need to hear the word of God seen and lived out and lives transformed by the very presence and person of the Lord. And I want to tell you why that doesn't often happen. I want you to hear this. It doesn't often happen because we live in a day where people have so many things but what they need, and they really don't know what they need the most. And even believers are okay with just what they're doing apart from the greatness of God's presence in their lives and His Word and His will and His mission in and through them. The rest of the story, Elijah leaves with direction. Notice verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way that you came, go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael. And then he says, also anoint Jehu, son of Nemshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahalah to succeed you as prophet. In this story, Elijah now has direction. He now has direction. God says, go back to work. God tells him to go back to where he came. He was to anoint two different kings, Haziel over Aram, was a message that God was still Lord over the non-Israelite country. His anointing of Jehu reestablished the Lord's rule over the northern kingdom. But God also gave him provision. There would come a time in his life when his ministry would be over, but the work of God would continue. C.T. Studd, a great missionary, one of my favorite quotes said this, only one life to live, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we are all passing through this world. And the great hope of every believer is this, that we have found the true living God. He is alive and well. His spirit lives within us. We have his word. Our mission is clear. We are the people of God. We are not exempt from problems and pain. We're not exempt from all of the heartaches of life, but we have a Savior who walks with us through them. And in walking with us through our heartaches, He speaks to us, and He takes what otherwise would have defeated us, and He turns it into victory for His namesake. God wants that for your life. I find here that this whole provision of uh, Elisha is revealing, and that God needed to tell Elijah, Elijah, this is not all on your shoulders. This is not all on your shoulders. And uh, you may need to be reminded of that. God always has a work. He always has a season in which he works. But we find here that in both of these men's lives, Elijah and Elisha, they stand as a testimony in this season of God's wonderful power as a reminder to Israel that their God was alive and powerful. But I can't help but tell you that in verse 18, I think that Elijah heard one more thing from God that he needed. And it was a hard one, but it was a needed lesson. He needed God's correction. Why do I say that? Notice in verse 18, uh, this isn't in there, but it's 
how I'd like to read it. And by the way, Elijah, verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. He needed God's correction. Oftentimes, we need God's correction. We need his loving hand to help us to see what we did not know, to walk with him in faithfulness and to trust him with the rest. And he tells this man of God this, and the Bible says that verse 19, Elijah went from there, he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, and then he anoints him, and he continues the work that God has for his life. But why this valley? In the middle of the story, why would God give this to us? I think it's because it's a reminder of the ways that God works, that God takes the despairs of our life, God takes the moments that make no sense when we're in the wilderness, when we're in the cave, and he brings us to a place where we need him. And we are in a place where we are ready to hear from him. If that's you, would you open your heart up to God? Would you say, Lord, with what I'm walking through, would you use this for your glory? Really, the story doesn't end here in 1 Kings 19. When you come to the New Testament, do you remember what the Lord encountered just before he goes to the cross, it's referred to as the mountain of transfiguration. Do you remember the two witnesses who were there? It is Moses and Elijah. And it was there after the Lord was in the presence of his heavenly father, transfigured by a glory by which had never been bestowed before, that Jesus in and as the son of God in that moment gives for us a preview of all that was coming from the Old Testament. Do you think Elijah could have seen all of that coming in this moment of despair? That he was going to take his faithfulness, the law reformer, the faithfulness of Moses, the lawgiver, and here is Jesus, the perfect son, the obedient son of God, never sinned, kept his father's will. Matter of fact, fulfills the law. And he's the one, the Savior, who walks before us, Unlike the people of God in the wilderness for 40 days, he sins not. He is the perfect son who obeys. And not only is he the perfect savior because he never disobeyed his heavenly father, he never sinned, but he understands what we walk through. And the Lord understands what you're walking through. And the Lord loves you today. Would you receive this word as from him? I want to pray for you and turn this back over to your pastor. And my prayer will be this, that we would hear from God and obey what he reveals to us today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this good church. Thank you for the men and women that love you, that follow you, that want to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to this church in the coming days as they pray and they seek your will, that you'll take their incredible heritage of being a light in their community and around the world Lord, you're using this church to touch the nations. May you continue to keep your hand upon them as a church family in this way as never before. And Father, to a person today, we pray that every one of us as your children would humble ourselves in the presence of our Savior, knowing that you are our priest. You hear it all, see it all, and you know it all. And Lord, let us hear from you, and that God, we would have the courage to obey We would walk with you, whether it's confession, repenting, whether it's the clarity of an open door, the courage to move forward, 
Lord, heal, forgive, and cleanse. Let us leave here saying, surely the presence of the Lord was in that place. And for those who are here who have never put their faith in you, let them turn to you. Let them hear and say, yes, Lord, call upon your name to be saved. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the darkest valley that man's ever known, that you tasted of death and you overcame the death of the grave and of sin forever, that we can live. In Jesus' name, amen.